My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 45, which is the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, January the 25th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing today in a study of Isaiah's uh, prophecies about the messianic coming of uh, the Lord. Also in Galatians, the first chapter beginning in the 18th verse and continuing through chapter 2, verse 10, and then in the first 13 verses of chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. So remember that the setting here is is that the people of Israel had been taken into captivity in Babylon for their sins, and particularly, according to Jeremiah, because they had failed to give the land its Sabbaths. For about 500 years, they had not practiced the Sabbath year, which God had ordained for them in the land, to let the land lie fallow every seventh year, and then on the 50th year, to let it lie fallow again, and then revert to its original owners. So that's the reason that they're in Babylon, and that this is a prophecy written to those exiles. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. And remember yesterday I talked about that, that that Jacob and Israel are interchangeable uh, words. I am he, I am the first, and I'm the last. And we see that again in Revelation, right? I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. So, in other words, there was nothing before me and there will be nothing after me. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. So we're going back, all the way back to creation here. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So he's still in control. He didn't just create them and walk away from them. He is still God of all creation. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. So he's he's speaking to his people. And, and the way that he says... I control all things is to refer back to creation, and now he's he's saying, I'll fulfill my purposes against Babylon and against the Chaldeans. And who are the Chaldeans? Well, they're the ones that Daniel saved. They are the soothsayers, the, the prophets, the religious leaders, the astrologers and astronomers. They're the forefathers of the Magi. And so they're the ones who believe that their gods are greater, even though Daniel, on two different occasions, saved them by proving that his god was greater. And that's the reason we believe that these magi come on the day that we know as Epiphany, when we celebrate that. They, um, that that's the reason they come is because they were so impressed with what they saw from Daniel, and they saw his abilities exceeded theirs. And so that's the, uh, the context for who these Chaldeans are. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Who is he speaking to? He's listening to, he's saying, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. So that's who he's speaking about. 
call him. Draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning. I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. I've not hidden myself in any shape, form, or fashion. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So Isaiah is authenticating himself, and God is authenticating himself as as well in this prophetic word. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, by the way, who leads you in the way that you should go. In other words, if you will follow me, (laughs) it will be in your favor. You will profit and things will go well with you. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. In other words, if you had followed me, then all would have gone well for you, and you would have had peace. However, (laughs) you would have seen the fulfillment of the promises. However, you didn't, and therefore, you're in the situation that you're in now. And he says, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And so the Lord has already once redeemed his servant Jacob, right? He redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. And now he says, I'm going to do this same thing again, and I'm going to bring you out of Babylon as I brought you out of Egypt. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. They made, he made water flow for for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out, which is again a reference to the time in the wilderness in the Exodus. So he, he says, you can trust me. You can trust me because I'm the creator of heaven and earth. I'm the first and the last, and I've done this kind of thing before. <laughs> Therefore, I can do it again, and I can do it again in your day. And not just I can, but I'm going to. I mean, that's that's the important part, right? We know what God can do, because if we know him, then we know that he can do all things. The question is, is it time? Will he do it within my lifetime? And, and, and so his answer to his people here is, yes, it's going to be in your lifetime. I'm going to do it. You're going to see it. In the gospel, so remember yesterday, we, we saw three different, well, we saw two different um, vignettes from one day. We we had read about the previous vignette in, Ger- in the Gerasene demoniac, and then we get the healing of the woman with the issue of blood for a dozen years, and the raising to life again from the dead, the daughter of Jairus. So he went away from there, the place where he did those things, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And we don't know there where it says his disciples. We don't know whether that's the 12 or whether it's a larger group, because sometimes it'll be a larger group that it applies to. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So what they see and what they hear have impressed them and caused them to wonder where this greatness comes from. So they're acknowledging his teaching, his wisdom, and his works. They're acknowledging all of those things that's coming through Jesus as extraordinary. However, now, 
wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know some things about this guy. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense because of what they knew. They didn't answer their own question, which is, where did he get these things? He has great wisdom. He has great teaching. And he does great works. They, they see all that. They recognize all of that. And at the same time, then, they, they question, because, wait a minute, we know this guy. And we know his family. He's nothing. In spite of the fact that he had done great things and taught great things and shown great wisdom. But because they knew this other thing about him, wait a minute. And, and so in spite of what he had done and what he had taught, they rejected him and were offended by him because of what they knew about him. Well, we've known this guy a long time. And we, where did he get all this stuff? So did they receive it? And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he, and he marveled because of their unbelief. What was the basis for their unbelief? I mean, literally, it was they, they knew who he was. They, they weren't allowing him to be who they didn't know, only who they did know. And so they rejected all of those things. And it's always a difficult path to walk when you know somebody well, and then suddenly you see them in a different way and in a different light. Apparently, they had been unimpressed with him prior to this, and now suddenly there's a difference in him. They surely knew the story of his birth, and yet here they ignore that because of what they know is before them. So he went about the villages teaching, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That's a pretty remarkable thing, but you've been given that authority as well. You have authority and can take authority over those unclean spirits in the name of Jesus. We see that all through the Old or the New Testament. Sorry, we see it in the Book of Acts on a regular basis. We see it uh, in in the ministry, not just of the apostles in the early part of the Book of Acts, but also later we see those same things happening through Paul, who has the ability to rebuke spirits. We see a mistaken attempt at using Jesus' name by people who don't know him and believe in him, the seven sons of Sceva, the priest, who tried to use the name of Jesus because they'd seen it work for Paul to drive out those evil spirits. But instead, what happened was they didn't have the authority given to them because they didn't believe in Jesus. So they just believed that they had seen something. So he gives authority to them over unclean spirits, which, which is a delegated authority. They've, they've already seen that Jesus had the authority over those unclean spirits, and now he delegates that to them. And, and that could have been an odd thing, because if they had thought about it for a minute, it was like, how could he possibly give it to us? It just it makes no sense. But he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. And so he takes seriously the fact that there are indeed unclean spirits out there. And then so he gives the disciples the ability now to deal with those spirits when they go out on their journey. And, and, and it's apparently necessary that they have that authority. And then he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Don't don't take anything with you that can be provided by somebody else for you when you're there. Don't be self-sufficient in that way. And so 
he sends them out, and they're, they're, they go out as kind of ragtag groups of two, people who don't look like they're prepared to do anything. I can remember that going on a mission trip in Haiti. Holy moly, we took a ton of stuff with us. We left a lot of it there. I will confess that. We, we brought a lot less back with us. It was tools and things like that, and we left a lot of those tools while we were in Haiti. But man, we planned and planned and had to have all kinds of meetings and talk about, all right, so what are we going to take, and this is what you'll need, and da, 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 as far as clothing and all that's concerned. And so it, 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 it requires a lot of preparation for most of us to take a mission trip. We don't usually just go the way Jesus said, just go. And I'll work through you, and, and everything will be all right. People will provide for you along the way. It's, it's an unusual way to send people out. If we're talking about somebody going out now and sending people out from a church to go plant a church, then we're certainly going to resource them well, right? We, we want to, to make this something that, that looks like something right from the start. That's the way we do church planting now, is we, we don't want it to start small and, and grow from there. No, we're going to resource it well in order that, that people will be drawn to it. And I say that without expressing any judgment. <laughs> but Jesus sent them out simply and said, just go do this stuff. Just go do this. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So don't move around once you get there. And if any place will not receive you and they won't listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. And so what Pharisees would do when they would go into a Gentile's home or into a Gentile territory, when they left, they would shake off the dust, and they were basically saying, we've just been in an unclean place, and therefore some of that is attached to us, so we're going to shake that dust off so that we're no longer unclean from the contact with, well, those people. So that's what he tells them to do, but only if they're rejected in a place. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. It's the message of John the Baptist. It's the message they're given. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they did the work Jesus did. Now, why did they go out with oil? I don't see where Jesus told them to do that, but, it, but it's what they did. That, that it's, it was a common practice. Paul, in fact, tells Timothy that here's what you do. If you've got somebody who's sick, send the elders out there, have them anoint them with oil and and pray for them, and they'll be healed in that way. And so it's the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit that, that is carrying this healing to these people. So the disciples go out, and they're now doing the works that Jesus did and proclaiming a gospel of repentance, but the, the, the word that John the Baptist had preached. In the epistle lesson, Paul is, is um, defending, I guess, his apostleship here. Because remember, he began the letter by telling them, what in the world is wrong with you people? I'm shocked that I've been gone 15 minutes and you let somebody else come in here and preach some other, quote, gospel that's no gospel at all, and the person who preaches that should be accursed. And then he's, he's justifying, I taught you. What I taught you, actually, I, I'm not beholden to any man for that. I got it directly from the Lord. And so he says, then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So not the James of James and John. This is his brother, the one who's referred to in the gospel passage when they list the sons of Mary. <clears throat> so... The, he says, I saw none of these people, and I'm, what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. 
And then I went into the churches, into regions of Syria and Cilicia, so sort of the neighboring areas. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So in the surrounding area around Jerusalem, in that part of the land in Judea, the the country of Judah that are in Christ, I, I had never even seen those people. They didn't know me. They only were hearing it, said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So they knew, and it's in the same way these people knew Jesus and therefore wouldn't receive his teaching and his healing. Here, Paul says, those people in and around Judea, they were glorifying God because I was a guy who used to be this, but now is this. But initially, they were not receptive. He, that's the reason there's this delay in coming back to that area, is because initially, they thought Paul was an imposter. He says, so then, after 14 years, we're now 17 years plus into his story, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, I had done all this work over a 14-year period, and so I went up to Jerusalem, and I had to go there for, for, because I got a revelation to share, and then what I needed to do was I wanted to check myself and make sure that the gospel I preached was right. But even Titus, who was with me, wasn't forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So, in other words, what, what he's saying is, is it validated on that, on, in this physical way, my message that you don't have to be circumcised to come into the kingdom of God now, was validated in that those people, those apostles in Jerusalem, didn't require it of Titus, who was a Greek. And so if they didn't require it of Titus, then why would you be circumcised? if the apostles themselves didn't require it. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we didn't yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He said, look, they came in there and they wanted to preach this nonsense that you had to be circumcised, but we did not give them any quarter because it was a lie from the pit of hell. And no, we didn't give in to that pressure. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. In other words, it, it, he's, he's saying, look, you know, they seem to be influential. These are the people who kind of, the, the apostles is who he's talking about. They seem to be the important people there. But the reality is God doesn't see us that way. God sees us as individuals. And, and there's no rank in the way God sees us. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't tell me to say anything that I wasn't already saying. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So what they said was, is that, hey, your mission 
is your mission. It's the mission God gave you, and so we bless you in this, but, but consider you to be an apostle with us. We're all apostles. Your ministry is over here. Our ministry is over here. And, and it's fine that that's the way it is, that, that we just have these two ministries. And, and I think some of the thing we can say about denominations and such, for instance, people can, can get too wound up about the distinctions, the differences between them. But the reality is, is that, that I believe that churches are, sent, are, are planted in different ways because it's many nets. It's just a, a variety of nets that, that one is not better than another as so long as they continue to preach the gospel and so long as they continue to uphold Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Then, then, then we're all doing the jobs that we were assigned to do. Now, if you find yourself doing something like David had to do when, when Saul gave him his armor and David said, hey, I, don't, I can't use this armor, that's not me. If, if you find yourself in that position, then you should stop. And you should do it the way God created you to do it. And, and that's all that's happening here. That's all Paul says. Look, they welcomed me. They welcomed the partnership in the gospel. We just saw that we just had two different spheres of influence. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In other words, Paul's saying, you know, hey, don't overlook the needs of the poor. And, and Paul says, hey, I was going to do that anyway. But, but it's important that we carry out the mission and the ministry God's given us to do in the way God created us to do it. Don't put on somebody else's armor. Don't try and do things somebody else's way because it, quote, works. We're not supposed to be pragmatic in all ways with respect to the gospel. We were each created individually and differently, and so the way we're going to share the gospel and the people we're going to influence are going to be different from one another. And so we've just got to be ourselves and take the skills, the tools, and the gifts God's given us and work with those, believing that it's all down to him anyway, because if his spirit doesn't do the work, then it's in vain.